This is Saving the Game, a Christian podcast about tabletop role-playing and collaborative storytelling. Recorded Monday, September 23rd of 2019, it's episode 162. In this episode, Dr. Sarah Lynn Bowman joins us to discuss safety mechanics and bleed in our games. Plus, playing characters of different genders, a new gaming group, player archetypes, permission to play, and more. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. I'm Peter. I'm Jenny. And I'm Sarah. And we have Dr. Sarah Lynn Bowman back with us at long yeah. last. Hooray. Yeah, the last time we had you on was 51 episodes ago. That's too long. That's like two years, Peter. Yeah, it, is, yeah, old. I know. <laughs> it is two years. I remember because I was working at the nuclear research facility and I did not have the job that I do now. Well, there you I go. I remember that. I remember that very distinctly because I also recall helping write the show notes while I should have been doing work at the nuclear research <laughs> facility. <laughs> uh, no comment. <laughs> hey, nobody died. It should be fine. <laughs> nobody died. And also like 50% of that job was waiting on other people to get me numbers. So oh, like, yeah. oh, I hear what that's like. <laughs> All right. So we have Dr. Sarah Lynn Bowman on with us. Sarah, for those who had not or have not yet listened to episode 111, where we had you on previously. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? Uh, why are you so cool that we had to have you back on the show? I mean, I can't answer that for you. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm a scholar and a professor and a game designer. And um, I study the psychology of role-playing and the sociology of role-playing uh, and many other things, educational role-playing. Um, and lately I'm extremely interested in the transformative impacts of role-playing, how they can help us, um, move through phases of our lives into new phases of our lives. And, uh, I also am very interested in safety culture and role-playing. Excellent. And you've published at least one book I know on this topic. I published my dissertation on, uh, the, it's called The Functions of Role-Playing, and it's about community creation, uh, solving problems, and uh, exploring identity. Um, it doesn't really deal with safety explicitly, though. That's been more of a, a, a recent research interest, I would say. Okay. That's fair. There That's are fair. some elements of that book that are going to factor into our conversation later, mm -hmm. hopefully, though. Because I have read it, and it is excellent. Listeners, if you have not tracked down Sarah's book, do yourself a favor and track down Sarah's book. It's a very yeah. interesting read. We will make sure to link that in the show notes, if at all possible. Anything else you wanted to talk about or plug? Uh, yeah, there's a role-playing game studies textbook that I highly recommend. I've written a couple chapters in it, um, and, but it's really kind of the, the magnum opus right now in the field. It's called Role-Playing Game Studies Transmedia Foundations. It's edited by Jose Zagal and Sebastian de Terding. And uh, I highly recommend checking that out. Uh, it came out a couple of years ago, and we worked really hard on it for several years. So Very cool. I will make certain to link that in the show notes as well. Uh, for anybody who is interested in this as a academic topic, but also as an introduction to how it actually affects the people at the table when you roleplay, which is why we've brought you on. It's such a fascinating topic. And while we all kind of have anecdotal stories of, well, it did this for me. I saw this at the table. I heard someone explain, hey, this is what, you know, gaming means to me. Looking at it from a, a more rigorous framework is fascinating. And 
we're not qualified, so we had to get somebody who is. So yep. I'm, I'm very excited. This is yes. going to be great. This is very exciting. All right. A couple of very, very quick news and notes bits. Peter, you had a little something you wanted to go over super fast. There's actually going to be a blog post about this before the episode goes up, so I can I can cut this really short. But I have started a secondary gaming group because our primary one has been just plagued with, you know, adult life stuff, basically, and scheduling issues. And I wanted to do a little more GMing. So I tracked down a bunch of our listeners from our Discord and put together a secondary gaming group. And one of the things that one of them said is actually going to factor into the discussion tonight. So I wanted to make sure I got that out there. For more details, it will be when you see this episode, it'll be the blog post that immediately precedes it. And I'll that'll link to it the, in the show notes yeah, as well. Yeah, that'll have the details. So Yeah, very cool. And I wanted to throw something out there real quick that uh, literally just happened today. <laughs> Speaking of our incredibly cool Discord community, we had a group of people just randomly decide, hey, you know what? Let's Let's set up a daily devotional in the Discord channel. And so they all literally <laughs> rolled initiative to see who was going in what order. I, I wish I was joking, but they actually used our, our dice rolling bot in the Discord channel. It, look, that we're sounds nerds. like it's our okay. listeners. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, our so delightful now a listeners. Separate devotionals channel. So if anybody wants to uh, check that out or participate or anything like that, go join our Discord and, and find out about that. It's it's cool. And the only thing I had to do with this was creating the channel. Everything else is listener driven, which is awesome. Again, our listeners remain incredible people. Indeed. I just wanted to do a quick report on the kids game that I'm doing oh, yes, at work. Absolutely. Yeah, it went well. I'm not going to go into specific stories because I don't know if the kiddos are OK with me saying that or whatever. Sure. Just know that the first session went well. There was combat. I did some of the best improv I've ever done in my life. And it Ooh. kills me that I have this ethical standard that I hold myself to because I want to talk about that. <laughs> but um, I've done so little improv from the GM seat and I got to do it and I had a lot of fun. That's and now awesome. we can do the Patreon question. Okay, absolutely. Let's roll here, shall we? Oh, and actually, you know what? This is a perfect question. One I'm, I'm glad we have Sarah here to talk with us about. From John and Jenny Swan. Have any of you ever played a character of the opposite sex? What did you take from the experience? Would you do it again? I am playing two right now. <laughs> Not like as we speak, but uh, in Grant's Eberron game, Ganelon is a dude. And in the uh, City on a Hill game, I'm playing John, mm -hmm. also a dude. I honestly have not taken a whole lot from the experience. I will do it again because it's fun, but I, I didn't do it for any deep, meaningful reason. And thus, I am not taking a whole heck of a lot away from it. I just did it because I had a visual idea of where I wanted these characters to be from and what I wanted them to look like. Mm -hmm. And those specific characters ended up being masculine. It's just the way it ended up. Um, no no special reason. I, I have taken no more or anything gender or sexuality related away from these characters that I can think of. Everything that I've taken from these characters is something that I've already taken from other characters before. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that uh, makes sense. In my yeah. case, I have not. All of the player characters I have had have been male. I have run a bunch of female NPCs when I've been a GM, but um, because I will probably get into this a little bit later in the episode, but because I tend to play like 
doppelganger and idealized self characters most of the time. I'm a guy. I identify as a guy. I'm very comfortable, you know, portraying a guy. So my characters tend to be guys. No, that's fair. Sarah, do you want to go ahead? Uh, sure. I uh, It's hard for me to distinguish between a PC and an NPC, so I'm just going to talk about my gaming experiences in general, because um, I go pretty deep, even with NPCs. I think for me, playing male characters has been about exploring my animus, which is a Jungian term for the inner uh, masculine, if you identify as uh, female. Or as, as woman, I should say. Uh, of course, we all have both feminine and masculine traits within us. Uh, so it's sort of about coming into alignment with repressed parts of the psyche. And in my case, um, uh, connecting with that repressed masculine and allowing him to come forward uh, really helped me identify the traits that I admire in masculinity and also the traits that I think could do some improvement uh, in the masculine, at least the way it shows up in our culture. Uh, and it also helped me sort of identify things that I desire and crave in masculinity. Okay. I, I have answer. played, I have played, uh, female characters, played one in Peter's game, uh, yep. the, the, what we have dubbed the motorcycle game. Uh, and hollow was a great deal of fun. I think what I took, not just for you either. <laughs> oh yeah. Hollow is a fantastic character. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad. Yeah. I, Hollow's a, one of the few de- characters I've ever played who I'm like, man, I wish that that character were still around. I may have to resurrect that one because normally like when a game ends, whether it ends prematurely or not, I'm like, well, that character's done. <laughs> not Hala. I kind of want to bring her back. I've heard um, that about multiple PCs in there. I might be bringing that game back in some form. So yeah, that'd be cool. But as for what I, okay, first off, would I do it again? Yes, of course. Absolutely. It's, it's great. The thing I would take away from it is, especially in hindsight, I need to take it a little more seriously than I did just because there was a little bit of, I'm not going to even necessarily say gender goofiness, but it was definitely, it was kind of a, a game where we weren't taking that especially seriously. And I would love to have a game where that, that was the case, if that makes sense. What if you designed a scenario around that where everybody was exploring gender and taking it super seriously? I mean, if we had buy-in from it ahead of time, that'd be great. There are games that are designed to do that. Yeah, sure. That I would not mind running. However, I I also have yet to find one that has a GM. It, the, most of the ones I've seen are GMless. So, are you talking yeah. about Dream Askew? You know, I could be talking about Dream Askew. I'm not, though. I really want to play that robot one. It is destroying me internally that I cannot recall the the actual title of the game. We mentioned it on the Angels episode. I know the one you're talking about. It's, I'm blanking uh-huh. out as well. Did yes. it wind up in exactly. the show notes? Because we could probably look that up real well, quick. Yeah, we'll, we'll look it up, but that's all right. Yeah, we'll um, yeah, I actually haven't played Monster Hearts either. Monster Hearts has been on my to-play list for a very long time. Monster Hearts is, I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily a, a good game for exploring gender unless you explicitly go there, but it's certainly a great game for exploring sexuality. Things, yeah. things get real muddy <laughs> in terms yes. of like, yeah. uh, attraction uh, and the mechanics facilitate that. So I, I highly recommend it. Um, it's a very fun, playful, awkward experience. Oh, absolutely. And I, and I know the group of people I'd want to play it with, too. I just they all need to stop living at the other end of the state. There's always Google Hangouts. <laughs> there is. They also need to stop working like the 5 a.m. shift. I mean, it's it's a real problem. All of them. <laughs> 
Uh, also, the the guy I want to run it is currently running like four other games. So he's a little busy. Yeah, he's a little busy. <laughs> it's a problem. Anyway, John and Jay Swan, thank you very much. This is a obviously great question. Thank you for sending it in. And if anyone else wants to send Patreon questions in to us, please go ahead and do so. If you're not a Patreon supporter right now, for as little as a dollar a month, you help keep the show on the air, and you get to send in questions. There are some other benefits, uh, you know, at higher tiers and. We love you for it. We can't keep the show going the way it does without you. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Okay. We have some scripture to read. Peter, you wanted Proverbs and Galatians. Go yep. ahead and hit us up with those. So this is Proverbs 4, 5, and 6. Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. Do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. And Galatians 6, 2. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. And we have uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And we have, I believe this is the entire epistle, third epistle of John. Am I correct? Uh, it's about half of it, yes. Half, <laughs> half of it. All right. So, so uh, third John, uh, verses one through six. The elder. To my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are wa are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers and sisters, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. Please send them on their way in a manner that honors God. I would like to lay some groundwork first. I mentioned that Sarah had well, Okay, first book, off, what are we talking about? We are talking about safety and bleed and related topics because... There's a couple of other things that are going to factor into this. I suppose you could really call this role-playing psychology part two with an emphasis on safety and bleed. <laughs> um, okay. So I, I want to lay a little bit of groundwork here. Um, Sarah, one of the things that you introduced in your book that I thought was really interesting and I would like to make our readers aware of is the idea of player archetypes. You want to unpack that a little bit here? Sure. Um, I don't know if archetype is the word that I meant to use, uh, because archetype tends to refer to the collective unconscious, but it really has to do with the relationship between the player and the character and how people describe that relationship uh, in my research. So what I would do is I would interview people and they would tell me about their characters, which of course everybody loves to do. <laughs> and then I would notice certain patterns in the way that they would speak about their characters. And then I sort of created some categories based on, on what I was hearing and also things that I've experienced. And so um, I came up with nine categories. The first is the doppelganger self, which is playing a character that is very similar or exactly the same as the self. We recently ran a game called Epiphany, which was about, it was a sort of Mage the Ascension esque. Uh, and it was uh, playing people that were very similar to ourselves at a spiritual retreat. Uh, we had different names and people could choose 
to be closer or farther from home, as we call it. But essentially, we were playing with our own philosophical ponderings, our own spiritual questions, and 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 bringing those to the forefront. So that's an example of using the doppelganger self, you know, particularly to have transformative impacts, which is really my focus these days. But some people play doppelgangers just because they're not used to role playing. So it's like easier to default back into something that's very similar to themselves. And so there's a variety of different reasons why people might play a character very similar to themselves. And I know that we're going to talk about bleed uh, later. It can be easier to uh, achieve a bleed state if that's what you are wanting to accomplish if you're playing someone close to the self. And, and some of these will have different aspects of the self that might come come through and bleed over. The devoid self is the self without some crucial aspect. So like if I'm playing myself without my empathy, I'm a very different person, right? Or if I'm playing myself without access to um, to some of my other capabilities, uh, how, how does that affect me? Or, or coming from a different family, for example, how would that affect how I become? Uh, in the world. So it might be a very similar to self character concept, but one that is um, taking something away. So would this also cover characters where there's like some kind of a disability that the player doesn't have? So if you choose to play somebody who is blind or deaf, would that fall under devoid self? Yes. If you are sighted or hearing? Yes. I was not going to mention that because I'm wondering about the ethics of that. Um, okay. uh, but uh, I, I'm not saying that it's necessarily bad to do. I'm just saying it's it's territory that we should tread very carefully because people have those lived experiences, right? Especially if you're talking about a word like devoid. Yes. Um, yes. Which yeah. I know in, in especially, and it, this is just the community that I know a bit about, but especially in, in deaf communities, it's it's not about a lack. Right. Of, of anything it's it's just you you have this different form of communication need um and it's not considered a void right okay well here's here's hopefully a less fraught example then somebody who has a very similar like upbringing or background to you but lives in an earlier technological society so instead of being an american maybe you know what would i be like as a medieval peasant where there wasn't electricity there wasn't running water you know, some of the constraints of a uh, like a pre-technological society or pre-modern technological society, I should say. Yeah. Would that also factor in or? Absolutely. I mean, okay. these are, this is theory, so it's meant to be useful. <laughs> so if right. we find it useful to, to, to understanding what you might be doing at the table, then great. <laughs> <laughs> And so the the sort of flip side of that is the augment itself. So like playing myself with a superpower, for example. Um, might be an example of that or um, playing myself, but I was born super rich and what would that look like or whatever. And so again, these augments might not, might have uh, aspects that uh, are drawbacks as well, right? Like every gift kind of has a, a flip side, a shadow side, right? So like kind of looking at what, and, and we've dealt with this a lot in the mage game, you know, what does it mean to all of a sudden be able to see atoms? you know, or be able to see into the spirit realm? Like, how does that impact me and, and the way that I perceive reality? Well, in this augmented and devoid is pretty much the quintessential white wolf game, right? You know, what if you have this set of augments, you know, you can, you know, you can regenerate or turn into mist or shape reality, but you also have this set of drawbacks. You've, 
you've got this, you know, rage to deal with, or you've got this bloodthirst, or you're watching out for paradox. Mm-hmm. I would say that all of these, particularly the oppositional self, come come through with White Wolf, um, and a lot of my co-players or white wolf players that I was interviewing at the time. So uh, certainly that a lot of this is white wolf inflected, but I, I think people can probably think of examples from even social realism games that they've played um, where it's like, you know, playing yourself, but in world war two or something like that, or someone similar. Um, so yeah. Uh, then there's the fragmented self. And this is, I think what a lot of us do is we take parts of ourself and sort of amplify them or magnify them, or maybe it's an interest that we have, or maybe it's a, a, a personality trait. Um, like sometimes I self-identify as a healer, you know, and so I often like to play healers in, in, in LARPs or in tabletop games where that's my essential part of my identity rather than just, you know, one of the facets of my identity. Um, and what does it mean to be a healer and how does that impact the way that I interact with others, for example. Uh, but it could be an interest. Like I've played a healer who used to run drag in the apocalypse drag shows because she thought that that was going to, you know, stop the world from ending. <laughs> like, And then so it's like a, a, a mixture of my desire to be a healer, but also my interest in love of drag and sort of ironic playfulness of that, right? So um, it doesn't always have to be serious with the fragments. It can be something that is like an interest that becomes super important to the focus of the character. And then there's the repressed self, which I would also call the regress, regressive self, the inner child, essentially, or inner children. Sometimes we may play a very childlike character, and those characters are can be really fun to play. They can also be very cathartic. We were talking about White Wolf, and I think Changeling is the is the game that really delves into playing these repressed childlike selves very explicitly. I'd also say Innocence. Yeah, I was going to actually say we act, we all just except Jenny. I don't think you were in this one, unfortunately. Uh, not this one, but I have played Innocence before. Yeah, my wife ran an Innocence game for us recently, and that was literally pretty much just us playing ourselves, very slightly changed. Back in the era we grew up in, it was very much this. Mm. And but you were younger. That was fun. Yeah, we actually set it in the mid '90s, so we were all pretty much the ages that we were back then, give or take three years or so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. It was fun. I think also I've been doing a lot of inner child therapy work, and I really do believe mm. that we each have an inner child that's still operating, whether we realize it or not, and getting in touch with that part of ourselves and allowing that part of ourselves to express itself um, is actually really important. And I think that's one of the reasons why we play uh, is to, to ha- experience that freedom of expression. There's a lot of, again, like a lot of healing that can go on when we allow that part of ourselves to find expression. But there's also a way that we learn boundaries with that, right? Because sometimes when we're testing out accessing our creativity, we come up against other people's boundaries and, and, and we come up against the, the, the distinction between free expression and how we need to self-modulate in order to be part of a social uh, group. That really goes into the safety conversation that we'll be having later. Yeah, definitely. And then also just really thinking about <laughs> when you're playing with these sensitive parts of ourselves, really taking care of them is another aspect of safety. I think it's important. And then I talk about the idealized self. And I think that's what most people think role-playing is. Um, and certainly I'm sure we all have examples of characters that we've played 
where, you know, they, they were better than us in some way that we would like to be. Maybe they are more heroic and have more courage, or maybe they're like a smooth talker and they're really good at getting dates or whatever it is. You know, uh, a lot of people I think may be drawn to role playing initially because uh, they want to play someone that is, is uh, heroic or, or maybe even somebody who good at certain things that are not are kind of taboo and and that goes into the taboo self too which is another type where it's exploring something that's socially not acceptable to explore and that that becomes like a fundamental aspect and certainly white wolf is all about exploring taboos right but there's lots of lots of games that 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 delve into that and monster hearts is another good example but uh kind of the you know the counterpoint to the idealized self is this oppositional self which is like if, if I could think of all the things that I'm not or some characteristic that really repels me about another person and then I'm playing that character. So these are often our villains, uh, hopefully, right? <laughs> hopefully we don't self-identify <laughs> as villains. You know, these are our, but it doesn't always have to be necessarily what we consider quote unquote negative characteristics. They can be shadow aspects of our personality that need expression or that need to need to want to come forward. They could be us trying to understand another person's perspective that feels very different than ours. You know, so yeah, uh, oppositional selves, there's a lot of them and we can learn a lot from those as well. And then I kind of have this catch all category for experimental self where people are like, Hey, I have this amazing idea. What if, and then they make a character for that. <laughs> uh, it might be some really crazy costume. It might be playing around with a certain voice or, you know, it's hard to say um, where these things come from. I'll give you an actual example from the game that I'm running. Great. A humanoid swarm of crickets. That's also a bard. Yeah. So wh- where did that come from? <laughs> I think the player liked the swarm race and wanted to do something with it. It's a 5e game, so I had a bunch of like third-party stuff that I kind of made available, and that was on the list, and the player just kind of latched onto it. He's like, oh, this is really neat. You know, it's a it's a very exotic character concept. And then he's like, well, you know, I kind of... He was originally saying like cicadas or some other kind of um, insect that's that makes kind of a, a noise, and that's the thing that they're known for. I was like, well... Crickets are kind of musical, you know, they've got the, the chirp thing and, you know, they sound, he jumped on that and started working on a backstory. And so now there's a swarm of crickets that became like a sapient hive mind from a bard song gong wrong, wandering around the setting. I'll be real interested to see what he does with it, frankly. It's a, one of the most unique character concepts I have ever seen in my entire life we've we've had a lot of like cricket jokes and stuff in the the discord as you would kind of expect um about half of them from the player but i am legitimately interested to see just kind of how that plays out and what other traits that character has mm-hmm. yeah that's a great example i mean it, of course you'd have to ask the player what what they're getting from it it could be one of these other types as well and of course there's crossover sure um you know there's some there might be multiple categories that something fits into or there may not you know that maybe people don't relate to the categories and that's fine too i mean like i said theory is meant to be useful so take it or leave it yeah well the player's a listener so i'm hoping that he'll listen to the episode and tell me in a couple of weeks but we'll find out i guess and the last one is i think we went through the taboo self a little bit playing with behaviors that are not socially acceptable which i mean in some ways (laughs) <laughs> role-playing itself is a taboo. It's becoming more normative, but still a little edgy, right? So playing with our edges or playing with things that are 
like strictly outlawed. And I think a lot of play ends up in the taboo zone in terms of like, for example, how common violence is. Yeah. And what little consequence we have for violent actions in role playing games often. Mm-hmm. And where's that coming from? You know, I mean, from a Freudian perspective, you might say that there's um, the id sort of coming out and expressing itself, you know, sort of the aggression drive uh, or the, you know, sometimes sexuality can can come to the forefront as well, although that tends to be even more taboo uh, in certain in certain gaming groups. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean it's bad or that it should be taboo. Like it, people sometimes will explored their gender and be able to actually for the first time in their life uh, present as trans for example and and that is a social taboo but the game space makes them feel more comfortable being themselves so taboo doesn't mean bad it just means something that they wouldn't normally be able to explore because it's not socially acceptable does that make sense oh absolutely but then there's things like cannibalism, which, you know, probably should remain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's, that's definitely not something that should become not taboo. Yeah. I, I, I suspect a lot of the terrible gamer stories come from that taboo mm-hmm. self bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess I would say just to, to tag on to that, like, I wouldn't say that there's t- there's anything that should be off the table if everybody's consenting to it. But. I would always kind of maybe ask yourself, why? Why do you want to play that? You know, what's going on? And a lot of people don't want to ask that question because it takes away some of the the alibi, which we'll talk about in a little while. What is appealing about that? I mean, I think we. I'm really interested in learning where our creativity comes from and what is motivating us to play certain types of things. Why do we want to play rampant violence? for example. Why is that hitting a pleasure center in our brain? You know, what's going on with that? Um, And is it a power fantasy? You know, what is it? And yeah, again, a lot of people don't like to ask those questions, but um, I'm always like basically constantly asking those kind of questions. So (laughs) (laughs) that's kind of your job, right? I mean, my my self-professed job. (laughs) Someone's got to ask them. Yeah, I mean, we're podcasters. We are the last ones who can throw stones at you for that. We just ask interesting people questions every time we get a chance. So it's, yeah. And it's uh, worked out well so far. Yeah, seven years. It's a great, great practice. Let's pivot and move into bleed here, because that's going to be the second thing that's really important to our discussion. There's many definitions of bleed. I would say that what is most useful to think of it as is something unconscious from the player that is moving into the enactment of the character or uh, the emotions or um, the thoughts of the character and vice versa. So there's bleed in when something from the external frame of reality, meaning our default reality, if you will, or our daily life or our daily identity bleeds into the game frame, the play frame or the play or the character. Uh, And then uh, that can also happen when we bleed out. So uh, something unconscious from the game space bleeding out into um, our daily life or into our character that we play every day, right? Our ego identity. That is, I think, on some level, a bit of a construction, but that's a bit of another topic. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it can be a little disconcerting at times when that happens, but it can also be 
really rewarding. And some people play for specifically for bleed and other people play specifically to try to avoid it. There's no right or wrong. Uh, I just think that it's important not to judge people for their preferred style of play. And worth noting that that may change from game to game, even session to session. Totally. Yeah. So this is kind of where we get into the, the meat of what I wanted to ask you, at least to start this off with, because once again, one of the players from this new game mentioned that they like to play characters that are pretty substantially different from themselves because it creates a, a like a more of a safety condition at the table for them like they they found that playing somebody that was not very similar to their self-identity was in and of itself kind of a safety technique for them. I thought that was kind of an interesting perspective because I'd never really heard it presented that way. So the the kind of follow-on question that I have is going back and looking at these player styles, I guess, if you know you don't want to use the word archetype, are any of those types more or less susceptible to bleed have you found as you've been doing your research or does it really just kind of come down to the individual? Oh, it's such a moment by moment thing. I mean, we're talking about the unconscious. So trying to plan for it uh, may inevitably block you from experiencing it, (laughs) ironically. (laughs) But um, certainly if you're dealing with things that are up for you, meaning things that are very emotionally raw, for example, in your personal life, and you're bringing that into a gaming experience, then yeah, is it likely that you're going to have some bleed over? Probably, you know, or if you've had this really intense vulnerability in the the gaming experience with other people, and then you have to switch to the other frame, is it common for people to experience bleed from that? Absolutely. Whether it's a strong catharsis or falling in love or, or, you know, even feelings of antagonism. Yeah. I mean, it, it, when, when we have strong emotions, it turns out that our body doesn't quite know the difference between player and character. (laughs) (laughs) That being said, there are some people that have a very strong divide and they are able to just switch it off. You know, um, they're more in a performative mode, I think, when they play. There are a lot of trained actors, for example, that really emphasize that this is important to be able to do. Like this is part of being an actor is learning how to how to make sure that there isn't bleed. And then there are others who lean into it. And we know about the method actors and, you know, I, I, they aren't actually doing the traditional method acting, but they're doing what Hollywood now calls method acting, <laughs> uh, which, is, yes. which is basically being in character all the time and never switching off. And like safety wise, probably not a great idea, right? Yeah. Uh, in terms of your, your, your friend at the table, some people need alibi in order to be able to play. Well, I mean, arguably we all need alibi in order to be able to play. And alibi is that permission uh, to to um, not have too much responsibility for what happens during play. Now, of course, as we mature, we are learning that we need to take more ownership and responsibility for what happens at the table. But it, it gives us that permission that everybody in this social contract has agreed that I'm not actually a swarm of crickets. Like <laughs> that wasn't me. That was the swarm of crickets that did that. You know, and that, that allows uh, us some relief, right? And sometimes having that very far from home character, meaning somebody who's very different from the self, allows people the ability to play. Whereas if they're playing someone too close to them, either they can't. Uh, pretend to believe is what we call it instead of suspension of disbelief. They have a difficulty pretending to believe, or maybe they just feel too vulnerable. 
you know, and they don't feel safe in presenting those parts of themselves with the other people there. That's what I would say. But I, I, I know that people have bleed experiences from playing characters very different from themselves. My collaborator and partner, uh, Hedgard Hugas, um, often talks about uh, what he calls mimetic bleed, which is when a thought form or an idea comes through the character to the player or vice versa. For example, learning a particular ideology in order to be able to faithfully play a character that influencing your daily life. Uh, or vice versa. I mean, this is a, a faith-based podcast, right? So if everybody at the table has a certain belief structure or or uh, is open to conversations about faith, um, those influencing uh, actions and the way that that game happens, that's an example of mimetic bleed. So sure. yeah, there's, there's, there's also ego bleed that Whitney Strix-Beltran talks about where essentially contents of the identity spill over and spill out. Uh, so maybe uh, aspects of my character now get integrated into my self-concept. But let me let me stop you there real quickly, because that's something that sometimes you're doing on purpose with like an idealized self-character, right? Or in the use of uh, gaming as therapy, for example. Where it's like, you know, the, I portray these things in game to kind of get practice with this and in, in the hopes that I will internalize it somehow, right? It, whether it's coping techniques or certain virtues or that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, you can consciously, what we call steer for bleed, meaning you are consciously putting yourself in situations where you think bleed is more likely to happen, but you can't force it. It's the unconscious, the unconscious like is very slippery, you know? Uh, and sometimes it will hit you like a ton of bricks, whether you, like it or not often. So well, for people who experience bleed, some people have never, I mean, I've gotten messages from people who are like, how do I experience bleed? Like, I, I feel like I'm missing something that other people are experiencing and I feel left out. You know, it's very interesting to me how different psyches handle role play and handle emotion. Do you find that from a lot of dedicated role players? Because I feel like that's a big part of the experience. You might as well be really? playing Go or something otherwise. What? I don't know. Really? Okay. Yeah. I've experienced bleed one time. Oh, I want to hear. I want to hear. Tell me. Like, okay. Okay. It was actually just after I started listening to the uh, podcast that we all listened to. And this is how this, this podcast happened. Uh, Fear the Boot. And I had just come to the realization that you didn't have to, you know, do a dungeon crawl every session. And the other players at the table were not listening to Fear the Boot. They did not know you didn't have to do a dungeon crawl every session. And the GM basically set up a story where we had to commit genocide. And I was like, <gasps> no, <laughs> this is me, Jenny, saying, no, stop. Mm. And and I was like, like OK, cool. Uh, my character does not lift a single finger to help anybody kill anybody else. I'm out. That's the one bit of bleed that I can firmly describe fully as like specifically bleed in. I'm sure bleed out has happened, but it's not happened to any degree that. Um, I can firmly say, yes, this is bleed out. I'm sure it's happened, but... You certainly seem to be experiencing a little bit of it with your character's family in Magali Dabina that one time. I wouldn't call that bleed out exactly. I would be... Because it's... It's not... It's not directing... Directly affecting me in the same way that... The thing I can definitely for sure say was bleed in was affecting me. 
And and like obviously it, it doesn't have to be super intense, but I'm honestly not taking a whole heck of a lot out of that experience. I am trying. I'm not succeeding very well. <laughs> That's what I mean about it being slippery, right? Like, you know, yeah. I mean, you can steer for it. And I know a lot of people who will go head first into a LARP that they know I do a lot of life action role playing, that they know they're going to have a lot of feelings at because it's, you know, famous for being a feeling LARP. <laughs> and then they'll <laughs> yeah. get frustrated if they can't get there. Even if they're they're playing with all of this personal content, I'd say it, it never affects me more than a TV show does. Mm. Like, sure. but that's still a form of bleed. TV shows have I I it's a it's a form of bleed, but I I don't I don't know that I would call it bleed because also TV shows very rarely affect me in a day to day way. If that makes sense, I may be misinterpreting what bleed actually is. Well, I can give you a, a two quick examples here. Um. I specifically actually went into one game with the intent of having some emetic bleed because it was when I was really sort of looking at myself. This was right before the podcast started, actually. And I was kind of looking at it going, you know, I keep telling myself, you know, faith is important. And I keep talking to my wife, hey, you know, my faith is important, but I'm really not taking it very seriously. I have just gotten invited to this mage game. I'm going to play a celestial chorister who is a catholic priest yes i love it and that is specifically what i did with that game and it specifically helped because oh hey i need to like you know find some uh some appropriate scripture and look up catholic doctrine mm -hmm. and all of this sort of stuff and that helped a great deal i'm not catholic so there was a little bit of separation there which was nice some space but it was also something i got to learn about so it was it was cool yeah now as far as, you know, day-to-day -day emotional bleed, and, and for the record, it worked, right? The the <laughs> whole Catholic priest thing, that worked very well. Moat was a very helpful character in that regard. As far as emotional bleed, I don't get it very much from role-playing. I get it enormously from books that I read. Mm -hmm. Books will destroy me during the day. I will be grumpy if like i'm in, a, in the middle of a tense scene and i have to put a book down i'll be grumpy for days and my wife will be like what what is wrong i'm like just i'm in the middle of a book there's a story going on it's fine it's not you i just i need this guy to get out of this situation all right do you feel like you have more control with the role playing oh sure all the time so it it's like maybe you feel out of control with the story because you're not driving <laughs> It's not it's not a control thing for me. It is very specifically I am am deep in this particular headspace of this character mm -hmm. and I'm kind of living there and those emotions just are the same emotions. Are left unsatisfied? Yeah, very much so. Or like I'm just genuinely worried about this character and something's about to happen or you know something like that. It sounds like you also just kind of resent being forced out of that when you're in the middle of it too. I, yeah, some of that may just be because I read very quickly and it's like if I have to interrupt a book, I'm still in that headspace and it hasn't ended appropriately. But yeah. I, that that bleed is something that happens to me all the time. Yeah, I think, yeah, for me, like emotional bleed when it happens in gaming is very fleeting to the point where I barely notice it. And it's not that I'm not having fun with my friends. It's just I, I've mentioned this before on the podcast. I've got you know, three brick walls between me and my character. There is a massive, I don't mind if my character dies. I don't feel like that's a loss. And I, and this may sound kind of morbid, but like 
a lot of the time it's just kind of funny to me. Like, like when, when one of my longest running characters died, it was a fluke. It was just like, I happened to roll like a four on a con save and I died. And I was like, fun. What a great time. <laughs> and everyone else around the, the table, I think was experiencing bleed from that. And they were all sad. And I was like, I had fun and, and now I'm done. It's it's interesting to kind of contrast that to my experience playing Lambert in Grant's Colony game, because mm. I did not go into that specifically looking for bleed. In fact, as I've said before, I kind of went into that like, really, I'm the guy who winds up, you know, I have to play another cleric. I can't get to try anything else. You know, and I wound up using that character and the relationship with the other player characters to, first of all, I think, strengthen my uh, friendships with the other people that I was playing mm. with. Second, I wound up using that to kind of meditate on and explore and wrestle with my thoughts about violence and force a lot. Mm. Um, because this is, you know, this is somebody who is supposed to be a spiritual leader, um, who I had written as somebody who was, you know, intended to be very kind, who tried very hard to do what was good, what was you know, helpful, what was righteous, what was decent, what was compassionate, and yet still had this elevated sense of moral outrage where he would get really vengeful when he was confronted with certain types of what he perceived as cruelty or wrongdoing. Uh, slavers in particular really set him off. Now, if you're going to be set off by something, slavery is not a bad thing to be set off with in the scheme of things, but it was interesting to kind of play with the the boundaries of that stuff in Lambert. And I think I've absorbed some of that into myself and am better for it actually. So. And that does sort of lead into safety techniques where we're talking about things that may set people off at the table. Yeah. We might as well start by defining what a safety technique mm -hmm. is. So Sarah, do you want to take a stab at this since you're the professional? Mm, no pressure. Um, <laughs> a safety technique is a way to set a social norm within a group that a safety is important, that safety will be respected, and that there are ways for people to opt out of content or to communicate to their co-players if they're uncomfortable with certain content or if they need some sort of calibration, meaning they need things to shift subtly in order to, to get the kind of play that they want. Safety techniques themselves might be things like checking in with somebody. We have uh, in LARP, we have the OK check-in symbol um, where we can say, you know, flash the OK symbol and maybe it's thumbs up or a so-so or a thumbs down. That's an example of a safety technique. So if we see a thumbs up, we know they're enjoying themselves, even if they're crying in the corner and they're loving it, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, if they give us a so-so or a thumbs down, we may go up to them and say, would you like me to take you somewhere else or what do you need? Or, you know, kind of ask the player if they if they need to to take a break or or whatnot just so that's an example of a safety technique another common one on tabletop is the x card which uh, was developed by john stravopoulos and uh, the x card is a way to indicate content that uh, somebody doesn't want in the in the play of the the game. So um, let's say, you know, a really common one is sexual violence, right? Um, there are a lot of people that have that lived experience. And so it's not play for them. 
Um, it feels way too real. Being able to point at an X in the center of the table or just put the arms up that say X, you know, which sometimes I'll do in a LARP is a way to say, I'm not comfortable with this content. Can we jettison it, throw it out and just, you know, move on. It's, it's not necessarily something that anybody should ask follow up questions about, but it's a way to just indicate, Hey, this feels uncomfortable for me. So for example, in the slavery, uh, example, um, there are players that are very uncomfortable with slavery in their, in their games, uh, particularly people, um, a, a lot of people of color, for example, express that that makes them extremely uncomfortable. And so, you know, the X card might be a, a really good option for somebody who feels uncomfortable to be able to say, Hey, could we, could we take this in a different direction? Uh, hey, can we not head towards that particular content? It could also be for something like a phobia, you know, uh, like spiders uh, as an example, or, um, you know, people have different phobias that, you know, you may not have ever thought of. Of course, we're in this free creative space and we're, we're you know, sometimes just coming up with stuff in improv and who knows what's going to come out. And so being able to calibrate and say, mm, I'm not really comfortable with this content for whatever reason is really helpful and, and not having to explain the self or be pressured into saying, Oh, actually you are comfortable with this content. You just don't realize it yet. Right. Like we don't want that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I, can I, mm. can I branch off of that for yeah. a second? I've heard a lot of criticism of the X card because it's just like immediate, you know, we suddenly aren't talking about that um i've heard some people criticize it because you don't talk about it and i would just like to say back <laughs> off Thank yes you. you are not the table therapist like, like yeah try. you're not a therapist if we're suddenly talking about the removal of toenails i'm going to hit the x card immediately mm-hmm. i'm not gonna talk about why i don't like the removal of toenails mm-hmm. you'll have to beat me to it mm-hmm. yeah yeah <laughs> No, that's a that's a really great point. Here's the other thing that I, I that I do want to throw in with regard to all of these. Like, none of these require an explanation, but I think one of the things that I've I've run into in a lot of like safety literature and stuff is that they they almost sort of imply that you're not allowed to provide one if you want to. Mm-hmm. And I I think um there is one particular incident that i can think of that actually happened at a fear the con i this is there will be a link to this blog post called going on tilt up at the top it was an example where i ran into something that was very uncomfortable for me that i was completely not expecting we were playing pugmire somebody attacked a non-combatant that was an anthropomorphic cat Mm -hmm. and we had lost our very beloved cat storm you know he was just he was an old kitty he died of congestive heart failure but it was really sad for us and that was like four to six months before this convention had happened. I saw this guy just like try and cut this cat sentry down and I lost it a little bit. <laughs> and it was one of those things where I was like, if it had been human on human, I would have had like a moral objection in character and would have said something. But because this was an anthropomorphic cat, it triggered like all of this additional like pet grief and stuff. And I was like, no. And I think at the time, if. First of all, there wasn't um, any kind of like an X card or um, the script change tools where I could just hit stop and be like, whoa, let's let's not do this. This turned into an argument and like a player on player fight and stuff. It was I did not handle it well because I was in a heightened emotional state. But I think if there'd been something formal and I'd been able to, you know, to hit the pause button, I could have taken a couple of seconds to collect myself and looked at the other player and been like, hey, in addition to this being like 
murder hoboism that you're doing here and this being a non-combatant. My wife and I also just lost a pet that we really liked that was a cat. Could you not, please? <laughs> and I think that would have probably had better results than just for me, at least, because at least I could provide context and a reason as part of, you know, what was going on. Well, first of all, I'd say that's a really great example of bleed. So thank you for that. Um, and yeah. just like all of a sudden being being overrun by emotion that you didn't even realize you hadn't fully processed um, in the middle, just from a, you know, a fun game, right? Um, yeah. And, and second of all, I would say that I don't think that safety tools are meaning to imply that you can't talk about your experiences. There needs to be no pressure to. There, there's no pressure. And also, I would say that going back to the whole people should have a conversation at the table about whatever's coming up, we aren't, we haven't created a social contract where that's what space is held. Like if you have created that social contract, it's one thing. Like if, if we're saying we're going to play with stuff that is in, you know, probably going to bring up some grief or probably going to bring up some, some heightened emotion. And we have an agreement at the table that, um, if that happens, that, um, we, can pause and, 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 and process and share that, then that's something that everybody's opted into. But some people will feel kind of hijacked by someone else's emotional state too. And that's one thing to, to keep in mind. So there's a balancing act here, right? Like of honoring the self and honoring one's own experience and honoring the table and where everybody else is at and what the group ritual that you're doing is. Right. Sure. And so, you know, my recommendation in that sort of situation is just to give a, you know, X card. I'm really sorry, but I lost a cat recently. Can we shift it to this? Or if, if you're too triggered to ha say that, that clearly you don't have to say it then, but, yeah. but to right. just kind of, you know, take a pause and, and say, you know, this is why that came up for me. It's really important that we avoid this for now. And then later unpack it with, people that you care about debrief with people that you care about and feel safe with. And th those may be the people at the table or they may not be, but you know, being, being able to have that space for that conversation, it might turn into a, a you know, four hour <laughs> unpacking. Right. right. <laughs> and that might be really valuable that that trigger actually came up because it's like, Oh wow, I'm realizing there's something I need to move through here. And I'm realizing actually I'm very uncomfortable with violence towards animals. Like that's a big thing for me. And I, I think I might in future games, like really, make it clear that I'm not okay with that kind of content, you know, whatever it is, um, that's very valuable to do, but maybe not in that exact moment. Sure. And I, I guess the larger point that I was trying to make is just to kind of, as you're reading through the various like documentation for safety tools out there, realize that you don't have to explain something, but if explaining it or at least indicating what it is that's caused you to, to activate some safety tool will help you're allowed to mm -hmm. you don't have to but you have permission mm -hmm. you know that that's since we've kind of started getting into like individual content and stuff one of the the things that's that we've been using for a while in our gaming group and also kind of that just kind of is in the zeitgeist these days is the idea of lines and veils or a consent checklist uh, Monty Cook Games just recently released their consent in gaming documents it's it's free it'll be linked in this it's like a dozen pages in a checklist. It's a very quick read to get through. And it covers a lot of these points as well, quite well. Yeah, it's yeah. It, the the techniques that they kind of favor in there are a combination of lines and veils and the X card, really. They use a little bit different language to talk about them, but 
that's pretty much the mechanisms that they're using. Uh, they use like a, a red, yellow, green thing, which kind of red would be like a line. Yellow would be more like a veil. And then green is like, eh, this doesn't bother me at all. Throw it in willy nilly. I would say a veil, though, indicates that the, the thing happened, uh, whereas right. yellow might indicate I'm uncomfortable or I would like to slow this down. So they're, they're, they're slightly different. You know, maybe tread carefully. I might interpret a yellow as, whereas a veil, yeah. a veil can be used for like, oh, we just had some awesome sex time, but we're not going to go into details. You know, it might not be something that makes somebody uncomfortable. Right. But, but anyway, yeah. that, that I, I, there are all sorts of nuances to this stuff, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we can only cover so much in a conversation, but. I would strongly encourage anybody who's listening to this, go do the research on this. Um, mm -hmm. And that document is a very good place to start. Yeah. Yep. First of all, you will, even if you have some objections to it, which we can get into that a little bit in a minute here, but I think you will find as you do more and more reading, you'll understand that this is actually kind of interesting on its own. And some of the techniques, um, I'm thinking script change here in particular, also have additional utility beyond just being used as a safety technique. Script change, for those that are unfamiliar with it, was developed by Brebo Sheldon. And they have in that document that it's basically like a set of VCR controls. So you've got like stop, rewind, frame by frame, fast forward. And so you can kind of use those to be like, okay, this is uncomfortable, but I'm okay with it being part of the story. Can we just not dwell on it? Fast forward, you skip past it, you get to the part where it's you know, in the past. Or, no, this is totally not okay. I don't want to go here at all. All right, well, let's rewind back up, you know, start over from the point where this started being introduced and go off in a different direction, kind of like if somebody had hit the X card. This is starting to get to a place where this might be a little uncomfortable for me, so let's do frame by frame and slow this down so I have some time to interject. Or, I just need some time to think about this. The other thing that is explicitly mentioned in that particular document is you can also use those same techniques if your game is getting away from the tone that you want. So if you're going for like very heroic and you're kind of veering into just like screwball comedy or something like that, you can back it up and start over and kind of, you know, go for the tone that you wanted. Um, if somebody is having a little bit of creative block or something, they can maybe use frame by frame to give themselves some more time to think you know, if they really want to contribute, but they're having some difficulty dragging up how. So some of these have utility beyond just safety techniques. And I think that's important to to remember, but not to lean on too hard, if that's makes any sense. You know, know that that additional utility is there, but don't let that be the primary reason for including them. So I've been really into container setting as a concept, um, which is used in a lot of uh, personal development work and group dynamics work. And the idea is like you're creating this container within which you're going to have an experience or you're going to have a relationship or you're going to have a, a ritual or group dynamic or whatever it is. And it's intentional, right? So, so that creating the container may include things like safety, but it also may include things like tone, but it allows everybody to co-create together the space that they're making so that they can surrender into it. So there's this sense of intentionality that allows for greater vulnerability or greater expression. And that uh, often can only happen when we feel safe. So things that are safety techniques, in a way, they're also permission. They're trying to help people feel more comfortable to 
to maybe explore some parts of themselves that are edgy. He called them growing edges, you know, to maybe share uh, aspects of their identity that don't normally get to be expressed, for example. So um, it's not just to protect people, which is what people often think safety culture means, is it's, om- it's always about protecting someone. Oftentimes, it's allowing them to feel supported enough to where they can actually um, take risks. And that's that's something that I think gets lost in the discourse sometimes. Yeah. And I think it's first of all, I think that's really good because if your group has had the wherewithal to come up with this stuff at the beginning of the session, then you know that kind of everybody is on the same page and you're going for that sort of thing. Right. It, it the the more that everybody kind of understands what we're all doing, the less confusion there is and the more you can actually get into some of the deeper stuff, which I think is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing, too, is just to go back to the incident that I mentioned from the con, one of the things that I that a lot of people are kind of knee jerk reacting to this is like, oh, you know, does everything result in, you know, massive psychological trauma these days? No, like the the incident at the con that I was at was not massive psychological trauma. It pushed several of my buttons. It put me into an unpleasant, heightened emotional state that I didn't want to be in at the end of a long convention you know, it kind of got my blood up and that wasn't a great experience. And sometimes that's all you're really looking to avoid is if you're just trying to do like a, a fun game with friends and you're just, you know, playing D&D or Shadowrun or something like that. And you just, you know, want to go out and enjoy like the the tactical problem solving and comedic aspects of a mission or something like that. Well, then something that, you know, kind of gets you into a framework of genuine moral outrage or starts bringing up uncomfortable memories isn't a real welcome thing in that experience. So if you can screen that out early, where's the problem? Yeah, like I I play games to have fun. There, There's like the level of safety where it's like, I don't want something to trigger me. And then there's the level of safety where it's like, I'm here to have fun and I just want to avoid these squicks. I don't want to get squicked out here. I'm here to have fun. I'm not here to be grossed out. And that's container setting, right? The other piece of this is if I am uncomfortable at the table, I'm going to shut down and not participate. Even if it's not something horribly traumatic, if it's just something that I'm just like not into, if it's like, oh, this is kind of gross. Thanks, dude. No, thank you. I'm not participating, which means the entire table is missing out on that. Yeah, And I'm not saying it because like, oh, you're missing out on me. <laughs> it's, hey – People are not as engaged at the table. We're not having fun together. It affects the entire table's experience, not just this one person. Right, because one of the most common ways that somebody withdraws when they start getting uncomfortable is just to, like, pull up their phone and start browsing Facebook or something, right? It's like, eh, this game's going to place I don't want to. I'm going to disengage a little bit. Well, now somebody's checked out at the table. Sure. You know, I'm going to go get a snack from the, the vending machine or something, yeah. Go, you know, into the kitchen and and uh, get myself a cup of tea or something rather than deal with whatever the GM decided to throw at us without any warning. Thanks. So can I get a little psychological here? <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> yeah. So it takes a tremendous amount of cognitive load to engage in a game more than we think. We have to be tracking all sorts of information and we have to when I talk about pretending to believe that is a, that takes effort, right? And to, even if we're in a flow state and we're really enjoying it and we're, you know, vibing off of each other and everything, it still takes a lot of energy. And that's why we often feel very depleted after we play because it's like, whew, I just spent a lot of energy in that. 
And whenever we get either triggered or uncomfortable or, you know, we're the game's going in a direction maybe that we didn't want it to go or whatever, then it's harder to maintain that cognitive load. And if you're also dealing with a massive amount of emotional information coming in, like from a grief memory, then it's very difficult to maintain that cognitive load. And it can be extremely distracting. And it can also trigger a different part of the brain than you were using. It can trigger the amygdala, which is the fight, fight response or freeze. There's, there's several different uh, ways that the body can respond. But when you're, when somebody is triggered, they are sort of emotionally hijacked. So the amount of effortful cognitive load that it would normally take to stay immersed in the play is is being disrupted. So it, it literally is very difficult for them to play. And it might they might need to check out in order to recalibrate. Or the checking out might be trying to avoid getting to the trigger in the first place. Like maybe they feel it coming on and they're like, nope, before, I'm not going to allow myself to get hijacked. So I'm just going to disengage, which might be a coping mechanism. So I just would like to emphasize what y'all are saying, which is like, let's just not get there unless somebody wants to go there. And some people do enjoy going there in a safe container, but like it can feel unsafe very quickly. And while that may not be traumatic, I think there is a level of trauma that exists when you felt safe and then you didn't. Mm -hmm. It might be minor, but if you felt like you were really enjoying yourself and you, you, you were connecting with other human beings and you felt like you'd found your group, you know, your people, and then all of a sudden somebody says something that feels uncomfortable or does something that feels mindless or whatever it is like that, that doesn't feel conscious uh, on some level or offends our sensibilities or whatever it is that can create a feeling of not belonging that can be traumatic. And there are people that have that experience, you know, they, they felt like they're part of a group and then they didn't. I mean, it's very difficult to create and maintain safer spaces. It just is. It takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of mindfulness. One thing that I want to say to that is um, what you're kind of describing here is the same phenomenon that makes putting your opponent on tilt in poker or Magic the Gathering a strategic thing that some people do. Because if you're in a, a heightened emotional state, you don't make as good of decisions. Now, I think that's an unethical thing to do personally, but it definitely you'll definitely see it in high-level competitive gaming like that. You know, people will antagonize each other to try and get a competitive edge and it's not just nerd things i mean that's no, a big thing in I mean, sports yeah i mean yeah professional poker basketball oh yeah is kind of known for it there's a reason that fans hold up really stupid signs when somebody's shooting a free throw in basketball mm -hmm. they're trying to just distract yeah. the person and you know break them off that stride and it, it they're not necessarily offensive or anything but it's you know anything to disrupt that moment it's literally part of rugby and it's not even like a thing that some players do. No, there is a point in rugby during, I can't remember what it's called. I'm going to call it a free throw. Basically, when when the opponent gets to try to throw the ball or kick the ball directly through the uh, goalposts, mm -hmm. the entire opposing team is allowed to, with their hands up, looking big, rush them and run at them. This is meant to distract them enough that they miss the shot. That is part of rugby. And there may be times when it's desirable, like I said, to mm -hmm. encourage someone to that uh, level of heightened state. For example, dr dread. I was on the receiving end of a rush and it was fun. <laughs> 
it was terrifying, but I also had fun. I was just going to use Dread as an example. That's a yes, game that yes. is designed to facilitate that amygdala response, <laughs> to make you really scared so that that bleeds over into the play. But that is also an agreement of the container, right? We're going to play a horror game that uses this mechanic. It's going to feel scary. That's the whole point. And when that's agreed upon and everyone has consented to it, it's a lot easier to surrender into. Yeah. And I mean, you see other games like 10 Candles and uh, what was that other one with the, the scraps of paper, Grant? The scraps of paper. There's There's been several. <laughs> You're the burning them. You it's like it. a, a thief or a rogue in the deep or something like that. Oh, or? I, I thought the burning paper was also ten candles. No, no. There's one scoundrel in the deep. Scoundrel in the deep. Yeah, that was. Yeah, so you'll get a lot, especially in the indie space. You will get games where the the design is going for that sort of thing, and you know, I think that's okay. It's just. Maybe not every single time, and especially not without people being aware of it. Right. And, and, and I think where, where I'm moving in these conversations is I don't really want to play games that are not intentionally designed and where containers aren't intentionally created. Like, I'm just, I'm not interested in experiences that aren't uh, created with some level of mindfulness for things like safety, for things like tone, for things like hey, we're going to intentionally trigger each other here. Is everybody okay with that? You know, like... Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then you can get the person that's like, no, no, I'm not. I will see you guys at dinner and get up and walk and off. And that is an awesome thing for someone to be able to do. Like, how empowering to be able to say, no, this isn't for me, and to have that respected. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people have never had that experience in their life. So that that is a learning experience right there. Yeah. The open door is actually a named safety technique that you'll see referenced where you are allowed to opt out of this and just leave if you want to. And there's not going to be like a lot of mockery or, you know, social consequences or something. It's, you know, people are just supposed to be like, um, all right, you know, we'll miss you, but take care of yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and I will say with the open door, I've gotten into many hours of argument about the open door policy. Um, and it's similar to the X card question, you know, like, is it okay to talk about this thing? Or is there a responsibility to talk about this thing? Like, if somebody just gets up and leaves, do we know if they're coming back? You know, some people suggest that when out of the hijack or out of the trigger or whatever caused the person to need to leave, maybe coming back and at least giving a brief explanation like to the GM, like, hey, I, I don't think I can continue to play. And, and you know, just or at least letting them know that you can't continue to play um, is. Yeah, just text them with like too much, not coming back. See you right. later, you know, because otherwise it's like, are they OK in the restroom? You know, is this person bleeding someplace? What's or going asking on, a friend, know? asking a friend to go can help, too, if it's not something the person feels that they can do themselves or, or a yeah. safety officer at a con. There are people that, you know, will happily go do that. I, I think I think the door can the, the confusion around it. I think we've all had somebody completely ghost a game before with no explanation. I've only ever seen it happen in games that do not explicitly have an open door policy. And I think if that open door policy had been a thing, I'm thinking of one game in particular, if the open door policy had been a thing, the game would have ended sooner, but it would have been a lot less unfun for one player in particular at the table. If this individual had been told right from the start, like everybody else... And if and if it's too much, you can just get up and walk out. 
I think it would have been a better game for it if this individual could have just been like, I'm out! And and been able to leave no questions asked and get their coat and get out. I do want to contrast, um, though, that idea of, you know, if something is bothering you, please, you know, feel free to step away. We're There's not going to be any judgment. I want to contrast that against... Well, if you don't like it, you can just leave. That hostile tone. Yeah, yes. for sure, for sure. Yeah, let's let's get into that because that's one of the things that comes up with what you've called the cult of the hardcore before in at least one of your writings, Sarah. Yeah, I, I, I've softened that to the culture of hardcore. But yes, some people feel very offended by that language. <laughs> I think it, it has been the default, honestly, for gaming for a very long time. Um, a lot of gaming groups to not have these kinds of conversations. Um, so it's why we're in this sort of growing pains era where we're, have, we're starting to have these conversations and safety language is becoming more normative. And and because of that, there's a lot of people who feel like their preferred play style, which might be more hardcore, which might be more fly by the seat of my pants and push boundaries and see what happens, they feel as threatened and they feel like they, they feel unsafe because they don't feel like they can go as far as they would like to go. And so there's a, an interesting contrast that occurs there, right? Where it's like some by creating additional safety, some people may feel more safe and other people may feel less safe. Although, boy, would they be offended if you couched it in those terms to their face. Sometimes they'll <laughs> say it themselves. They'll say, these safety rules are making me feel unsafe. And so, and I say they, I, I say they because I'm clearly positioned on one side of the fence here, but I don't mean, I don't want it to sound like it's a us versus them because we're all in this together and people have different play styles and they have different preferences. What I would say is that there are experiences that people have within the culture of hardcore um, peer pressure experiences, for example, pressure to conform, pressure to not make a big deal of something if it made them uncomfortable. And, and that can override maybe their desire to um, stand up for themselves. And that's really what we're trying to avoid here. This isn't about shutting down play or not allowing people to play hard. In fact, when people feel safe, I don't know if y'all have heard of the game Conscience before, but it's a Westworld LARP in Spain where, you know, I kind of helped a little bit with the, the safety techniques for, for that LARP. They, they go all the way, you know, in a lot of uh, areas, but there is enhanced safety. There's consent negotiations. And some people felt deeply uncomfortable with that. They're like, oh, well, in our play culture, we're used to just saying this one thing and then going for it. It's like, well, that's great, but you're, you're actually bringing people in from like 18 different countries right now that have different play cultures. And you've got to figure out a way to figure out what people are comfortable with. Um, and this is like a four day experience in a, in a old West town where they're playing Westworld. I don't know if y'all are familiar with that show, but it's a very, very intense show with a lot of violence uh, in it and sexual violence in it. Um, and those themes are, are explicitly played in that LARP. So there is, sometimes pushback, but like a friend of mine was sharing that they saw things happen in that LARP that they've never seen in other LARPs because of the safety structures that were built. So I think there's often this assumption that playing too safely will make people feel inhibited to take risks. And while that is true for some people, I've heard people say that my experience is that is an indication that maybe they might benefit from self-advocating more or benefit from having those consent conversations being like, Hey, I'm really interested in playing this 
kind of edgy scene. Would you be into that with me? And that requires a level of <laughs> transparency and conversation that honestly, I think would benefit our lives in general, would benefit our relationships, would benefit our negotiations and other relationships in our lives. So many human problems can be reduced to a breakdown in communication somewhere. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's if you've got better communication, that's usually just kind of a good thing in general, right? Yeah. And then some people are like, well, what about nonverbal communication? And I would just say with all the current Me Too stuff going on, uh, verbal communication is probably a good idea, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. um, yeah. just, yeah. just to be sure. And uh, th that isn't to say that people may not say something and mean another, cause that does happen. But so it's kind of a mixture of reading verbal cues and nonverbal cues, right. And trying to ascertain if somebody's an enthusiastic yes to what's happening, or if they're just going along with it to make another person feel comfortable and like, <laughs> or if they've been intimidated into right. it. Right. Here's the thing, like somebody may feel uncomfortable and still, and that might be a growing edge for them. And that might be the place that they need to play. Like I know a lot of people who are really uncomfortable giving speeches, for example, or, or, you know, being like out in the public eye, but they really want to try it because, you know, they want to play that politician or whatever who gives the big speech because it's a growing edge for them. Like being uncomfortable doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. Um, but if somebody is is not productively uncomfortable, right? Like it's hijacking their nervous system, <laughs> then, you know, then that's, they need a way to be able to communicate that, in my opinion, in order to continue to feel safe in the environment. Yeah. One last thing before we let you go here, I, I, we've touched on this kind of around the edges of some of the other parts of the conversation, but you and a, a I think two other collaborators put out something called the Butterfly Effect Manifesto, where it's kind of going beyond safety and into growth. Do you want to talk about that a little bit before we wrap up here? Because I thought that was a really interesting read when I went through it. Thank you. Yeah, I wrote that with Shail Hedgard Hugos, who is uh, the person that we were talking about earlier who uh, came up with the concept of mimetic bleed. He and I are really interested in a role play that is geared towards transformation. So we know, for example, that people might learn, you know, sort of as a, as an accident, almost social skills, <laughs> or we know that people might uh, find places of bravery, for example, to do that speech, right. And like realize, oh, wow, I actually can give speeches. And maybe they learn that about themselves. But again, going back to this idea of intentionality, like actually going into an, a role play experience with the intention of having some sort of transformation. And on some level, we're always transforming in some way if we're stepping into a game. We are changing ourselves. We are changing our, you know, our, our fictional reality, <laughs> making our goals intentional and setting that container as a group in a way that feels safe and so that others can surrender into it is I think really it's sort of a, it's a place I would like to go more to towards, if that makes sense. I don't want to say it's like the next phase or like, this is where everybody should be because there, it's absolutely yeah. valid to not want to do that. Right. But for the people who do want to do that, like that's where we want to play. So it's a manifesto. It's meant to be like, this is our preferred play style. It's fine if you're not into it, but like, it's kind of where we're, we're wanting to go. And the theme of the butterfly is about transformation. I mean, the butterfly is a caterpillar, and then they go through this like extremely painful larva stage where they basically are 
turned into sludge. And then they, they have to stitch themselves back together and they come out as this beautiful creature, you know, um, not that the caterpillar wasn't beautiful as well in its way, right? Or the larva, right? It's just, they're all, they're all phases. There's a, a sense of expansion that we experience when we have a really great experience at a LARP or at a, at a tabletop game, but there can also be a contraction. And, and, and if you just think about breathing in and breathing out, there, there are a lot of rhythms of the universe, the tides coming in and coming out that are, that mirror this expansion and contraction and honoring the fact that maybe after a really expansive experience at a game or at a con, you might need to eat a gallon of ice cream and sit by the couch and like <laughs> have a contraction and, and that, that there's gold there, that there's something there for you. Like what was it about that expansive experience that you are now missing or that what is coming up for you that is now feeling scary or feeling sad or whatever, like what, what needs to be loved more, what needs to be nurtured more. And I know this is getting a little, a little self-helpy, but that's kind of where I'm going with it. So this idea of, of really caring for ourselves, even when we're in states of contraction and, and acknowledging that that's part of this process. And then also that the butterfly effect, right? This notion that even a tiny little fun little experience might have a profound impact on somebody's life. Like I know somebody who there's a LARP called Just a Little Oven, which is about the AIDS crisis in the eighties. And it's often referred to as one of these LARPs that's, that's very transformative. People have really powerful experiences. Um, sometimes they can explore their queer identities in ways that they wouldn't have before, for example. I've also heard that one gets into a lot of themes of just like grief and loss and kind of what it's like to, to have a, a group disintegrate around you and stuff. I've, I've heard that one's a, almost a uniquely powerful LARP. Yeah, absolutely. I would say the best design LARP. And I, I say that having explored a lot of things um, <laughs> and it's, they're constantly iterating it to make it even better. But I just played it in the UK for the third time. And when we say play here, uh, I, I want to be careful it's not play like, haha, this is fun playing this really intense experience about AIDS. Like it's more about a lot play in the sense of alibi, like allowing the self to, to surrender into an experience where we're dealing very seriously with issues of community, issues of sexuality, issues of gender, issues of homophobia. Like there's all sorts of stuff that comes up in that, in that space. And and again, like setting a container where that can be held and contextualized so that it doesn't negate or erase or minimize real people's experience, right? A friend of mine who, you know, just happened to, there's a, there's a nightly drag show. I've mentioned drag now a couple of times. So you can imagine how delighted I am about this LARP has a nightly, like it's three nights and there's <laughs> a built-in drag show, right? <laughs> One of my friends actually started doing drag as a result of that, like saw the, this drag show and said, I want to do that. And now is, has, is like a pretty famous drag personality in his hometown, you know? Wow. So like it, it, that is a small experience, right? Like the, the designers didn't set out to make a LARP about like doing drag per se, but the fact that there was a drag show created this cascade effect in this one person that had this tremendous impact in their life. That one little moment of, aha, maybe this is something I might want to do. So this idea of the butterfly effect that is, that a small thing can actually have a, a really profound impact on life is what we were trying to explore with that piece. Very cool. Yeah. Dr. Serlin Bowman is a researcher, an author, a game designer, 
the kind of person who can write grants to ask for money to go to LARPs, which makes me incredibly jealous. Um, <laughs> and a fantastic guest. Thank you so much for joining yes. us. We really do appreciate you taking the time to talk about all this with us. Always a pleasure to talk with you, Sarah. Oh, yeah. If anybody wants to find you on social media or find your work or anything like that, where can they go to find all of that? I'm on Facebook, so that's the easiest way to get a hold of me. And you can also go to sarahlinbowman.com. Sounds good. Anything else before we wrap up? Uh, either from you, Sarah, or from anyone else? I just want to say thank you for holding space for this conversation and for being concerned about these things. They're, as we know, very touchy subjects, and there's a lot of disagreement about them. <laughs> uh, and it's an important conversation to have. So thank you for, for having me. Yeah, it, it is a very important conversation. I want to echo that. It. I know people sometimes feel uncomfortable talking about these things. We want to make it clear it's okay to do. Yeah. However you do it, it's a conversation that is important to have with – ideally, you should care about the people you're gaming with, right? And show them grace. And taking care of them is part of that, right? Giving them space to say to, – to set boundaries is a form of grace that we need to express at the table. Absolutely. That's beautifully put. Thank you. On that note, I think – we should go ahead and wrap this up. Sarah, thank you so much for all of your time. This episode has gone long, and we really appreciate yeah. you sticking around for that. Yeah. And from all of us here at Saving the Game, have a good one. Take it easy. We'll catch you next time. Bye. This has been a production of Saving the Game. All episodes are produced and published under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, share-alike license. Our logo is by Ruben Smith Zimple of 3d6design.com. Our music is The Promised Place Beyond the Clouds by James Opie. You can find more of his music at Nihilore.com. To hear our past episodes, to find syndication and license details, to connect with our fantastic listener community, or to contact us or support our show through Patreon, visit our website at stgcast.org or savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, do good, and happy gaming.